Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 10 and 11. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome tonight to our lecture on Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Last week, we saw that God had given a sign of the covenant to Noah, that beautiful rainbow, the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So all's well that ends well. Isn't that how it is with Genesis? So awesome. Everything turned out great. God wiped evil off the face of the earth. The ark came to a rest on top of Mount Ararat. The waters receded and God put that beautiful bow in the sky as a covenant sign for all people for all time. It's so awesome. All's well that ends well. The Lord had washed the earth clean of all unrighteousness. The Lord God had destroyed all evil on the face of the earth. The ark had come to rest. The waters receded. One righteous family was left to repeople the entire earth. And God remembered Noah. And Noah remembered God. And immediately upon exiting the ark, Noah immediately offered God a sacrifice. And what was God's response? Do you remember? Oh, God was so well pleased. I looked up synonyms, jubilant, gladsome, delighted, exuberant, elated. God was pleased. The Lord God smelled the pleased pleasing odor in his nostrils. Remember the pleasing odor of a burnt offering with thankful, grateful hearts of praise. Oh, God was pleased. The Lord God smelled the pleasing odor and he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the imagination of man's heart is evil. Now, what does that mean? The imagination, the intent is another translation. The intent of man's heart is evil. That's fallen mankind, remember. In the beginning, it was not so. That's after the fall when humanity had fallen from grace and now man, humanity, is saddled with something called concupiscence. And it's a tinder for sin, an inclination for sin. It's not sin itself, but it's an, we're inclined now to sin in this fallen nature. So the imagination or the intent of man's heart is evil. What's that mean? Well, there's an internal struggle going on inside you all the time. It's between your flesh and your spirit. The lower nature in us, the human flesh, the beastly nature, rebels against the higher nature, God's spirit alive in us. And this internal struggle is called concupiscence. And every single person in here has it. We all have concupiscence. St. Paul had it, and he explains it well without the fancy words. The conflict of the two natures within us. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. And what am I doing? I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Do you ever feel that way? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in that beastly side, that lower nature. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. And if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, St. Paul. 
the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, which is making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. I'm a wretch. Amazing grace, right? That saved a wretch like me. Jesus said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Because why? The spirit is willing. That nature in you, the spirit is willing. But the flesh, the beastly part is what? Weak. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. After the fall, we have concupiscence, a tender to sin, an inclination to sin, the struggle, the internal struggle between our fleshliness and our spirit, concupiscence. So the Lord God smelled the smooth, soothing aroma, and he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then God said something interesting. While the earth remains, Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God is introducing in the scriptures the seasons, the cycle, the, the rhythm of life. There are going to be seasons and all the Jewish festivals eventually are going to be in a secular motion. They're going to go around and around and around. Winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall. There'll be a liturgical cycle in the Jewish calendar, same as in the Catholic calendar. We have the liturgical cycle of the year and we know when Advent's coming and we know that we look for the purple color and we we know we're going to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? So there are seasons and rhythms and cycles of worship, and God is teaching his people because God's the best teacher ever. And this is God's pedagogy. That means that's how God teaches. Catechism number 53, the divine plan of revelation is realized simultaneously by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other, and they shed light on each other. It involves a specific divine pedagogy. This is how God teaches. God communicates himself to man. How? Gradually. God prepares man to welcome by stages the supernatural revelation that will culminate in the person and mission of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Everything is going to end in Jesus, but he's going to teach us over the centuries gradually, gradually, gradually. So we fly over Genesis with a bird's eye view now, but back then, uh-uh. So in the story of Noah, we symbolically have already met the bride of Christ, which is the church, which was hidden last chapter. It's the ark. And we learned about types and anti-types. A type, the ark, even better, the anti-type, what the ark's going to symbolize and be the church one day. And God, too, is teaching us about worship. The church will eventually offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving continually. All sometimes around the world at every hour mass is going on somewhere in all the time zones, all the languages. God has communicated himself to man gradually, preparing us by stages and everything will culminate in Jesus Christ. So throughout the centuries, God is teaching us how to worship him. What pleases him? And what does not? We already saw it with Cain and Abel. Can you see this picture? I love this. He, Abel, that pleased the Lord. And Cain, it's smoke in his face. That did not please the Lord. Because Cain is concerned about himself. God is concerned with our internal heart condition when we offer him a sacrifice. Our inner spirit. What's our countenance before the Lord? You remember how Cain had a fallen countenance? Sin 
the Lord said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's ready to master you. You've got you to overcome it. You have to fight off that struggle. Jesus tells his people on the Mount of Beatitudes, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your sacrifice. So it's the condition of the heart. When we go to mass, when we worship the Lord, if we're angry and in a fight with our husband or if we're mad at someone, he wants our heart countenance right with him when we come to worship. Jesus is asking us to approach the altar with a pure heart and a pure spirit. Paul told the Corinthians, whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So we come to communion with pure hearts and clean temples and maybe reconciliation first. Reconcile with your brother first before you come to the altar. And so churches often offer uh, reconciliation right before mass or on Saturday before mass. When we have our first communion, what did we do first? First, we had first reconciliation because we wanted a pure, clean, holy temple to receive the Lord and for him to receive our offering to him. And so it's a real pure thing that the Lord wants. And we're learning this already in Genesis. This will be a familial sacramental, uh, sacrificial liturgy that Noah offers. It's an offering of thanksgiving and praise to God. And it's already unfolding in the first chapters of the Old Testament. Noah is acting as the high priest of his family. He's the one, the father, the leader offering the sacrifice and God is pleased. So just as Noah did, we remember God and God remembers us. He told us at the Last Supper, do this in memory, in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember this night. Remember this sacrifice. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And just as Noah did, we offer sacrifice and God is well pleased. We remember all God did through Jesus Christ, and we actually enter into the eternal sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. The same one outside of time and space that's continually going on in the entire universe. Paul told the Philippians, you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Mm. God accepts, it pleases him. He accepts that fragrance. The fragrance of Christ is what it is. He told the Ephesians, Paul did, to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, the smell of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, Paul told the Romans, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship ourselves, our living bodies, an acceptable sacrifice to God. And Peter, our first Pope says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So everything will culminate in the final offering of Jesus Christ. And we're part of that. And it's a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Paul told the Corinthians, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. We got to think about that. What kind of odor do you give off? 
You know, is it the fragrant aroma of Christ, life to life, or is it the stench of death? Life to life aroma? Jesus, you're full, you know, at the grocery store, in the traffic, in the, at, at work, around the water cooler, at work, are, which aroma are you? Life to life aroma, the fragrance of Christ, or death to death? Because death has a smell. Death has a fragrance. It's a stench. If you've ever had a dead mouse or, you, you know, even a dead potato in the bottom of the bag, you know the stench. Jesus knew the stench. Lazarus had passed away, and Jesus waited two more days before he went. And when he came, Martha said, Lord, you, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha said, oh, the dead man, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, a stench, a foul smell. He has been dead for four days. So there is a stench to death, but Jesus Christ brings in what? The odor, the fragrant aroma of Christ, which is life. He raises Lazarus from the dead because the fragrance of Christ is always life, eternal life. So we want to be that fragrant aroma of Christ. We want to be life to those around us. So in our daily life, do we bring the stench of death or the fragrance of life, which is Jesus Christ. This is my mom and my granddaughter, Zelly. And my mom is in a memory care center. She's 88 years old. She is locked up, literally, with a code. She can't get out. But my mom brings life. She loves Jesus so much. She wants to go home. She's longing to go home. She calls us and says, I've got my bags packed. And she's not kidding. And she's like, when are you picking me up? I want to go home. But she's so full of joy. This was the last time we were with her just a couple weeks ago at a family wedding. Um, that's my sisters and two of my brothers. And this is some of mom's family. Some of her kids or grandkids or great grandkids. Just a few of them. Um, because mom was open to life and she brought the fragrance of Christ wherever she went and that fragrance is something we want to be around so we hired a van and got her out of the lockdown memory care and got her to that wedding and she brought so much joy she brought the fragrance of christ to that wedding and that's who you want to be around people that have the fragrance of christ the stench of death you know those people are lonelier to be truthful so we all have an active role in this new covenant of eternal life to be that fragrance of Christ because we're part of this new bride, this new covenant bride where Christ is the head and we're connected. We're his body. So we have his body odor and that's Christ, a fragrant aroma of life. It's the aroma of Christ. It's very attractive. It's a magnet to people. Now, we have to understand covenant when we're in Genesis. So we got to know a little bit of theology of covenant. It's going to be very important all the way through Genesis. So I want to introduce it tonight. The first time we hear the word covenant will be in Genesis chapter six, when God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, Noah, and with your family. I'm going to establish a covenant. Chapter nine, five times in chapter nine, he talks about covenant, the sign of the covenant. He'll remember his covenant. What is a covenant? It's very different than a contract. Very different than a contract because a contract is a legally binding agreement which recognizes and governs the rights and duties of the parties in the agreement. A contract is legally enforceable because it meets the requirements and approval of the law. An agreement typically involves the exchange of goods or services or money or promises or any of those. And in the event of a breach of contract, the law awards the injured party access to legal remedies, such as damages and cancellation. If someone breaks the contract, it's null and void. It can be canceled. That's way different than 
a covenant. You cannot cancel a covenant, especially with God. Covenant love is different than contractual love. A covenant is way more than a contract in which two parties have just agreed on an exchange of goods or services. A covenant <clears throat> binds the persons together way deeper than a contract. A covenant cannot be broken ever. A covenant with God is eternal. Even if the human breaks their side of the deal, God will never, ever, ever break his side. God will not dissolve any of his covenants ever because God takes an oath, God swears, and God cannot lie. It's not within his nature to lie. So when we have a contract, like uh, we go and get a marriage license for a civil marriage, and it's a marriage performed according uh, to the recognized government official, we go to the judge or whatever. 50% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. If you have more than one marriage, the subsequent marriages, it's even a higher rate of divorce. But just as easily as you got that marriage license, you went down to the courthouse and bought, got your marriage license, you can also just go file a decree of divorce and it's over. Different than a covenantal marriage. A Catholic marriage is a sacramental marriage. And a sacramental marriage is a covenant oath between God and the man and woman. And even if the couple break their promise, God will never, ever, ever, ever break his promise. And rituals and prayers by which the sacrament is celebrated serve to express visibly what God is doing invisibly. And Catholic teaching holds that a sacramental marriage brings grace to those who receive it with the proper disposition. So there is grace in a sacramental marriage. So when Steve and I stood before the altar, and this is us at St. Mary's in Grand Island, Nebraska, St. Mary's Cathedral, this was our wedding, and it was a sacramental wedding, and there was grace present. And we needed that grace. Many times in our marriage, we needed, 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 needed God's grace to get through sickness and health and richer or poorer, uh, better or worse. We needed God's grace with kids. We needed God's grace with so many things. If we wouldn't have our faith or had God's grace, we, it, it's just such a gift that God infuses that sacrament with grace. Pope Paul VI wrote in Humanae Vitae that the marital sacrament of matrimony, husband and wife are strengthened and consecrated. Consecrated means you're made holy. You're infused with grace for the faithful accomplishment of their proper duties, for the carrying out of their proper vocation, even to perfection. So Steve's almost to perfection and I have a far way to go. But the Christian witness, which is proper to them before the whole world, this is, this is a sacramental marriage is going to witness to the entire world what God can do with the grace of this vocation. So we always want our kids to have a sacramental marriage. So in God's covenant, all the covenants are going to lead to one thing because they're all going to culminate in a new covenant. And that new covenant is Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ will be the new covenant. But the first covenant we already saw was Adam and Eve, and it was called a marital covenant. They didn't call it that but that's what it was. It's a marital covenant was between two people and God. And we know that Adam, Luke calls Adam the son of God. When he does his genealogy, the son of Ethnos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God. God created Adam. The Lord God put him into a deep sleep, took his rib, brought the rib out of man and made woman specifically for the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's taken out a man. And Jesus Christ tells him that this is 
a covenant. He tells us in Mark 10, it's a covenant from the beginning of creation. God made them male and female. The reason this man, uh, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother. The two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a covenant with God. And in that marriage covenant, it's a very intimate family relationship between the man, woman, and God. Okay. And it was on the seventh day of creation that God covenanted himself to Adam and Eve. It's when he swore an oath. It's in Genesis 2, the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from the work he had done. He blessed, he hallowed, he sanctified the seventh day, and he rested. And in the Hebrew, those three sentences, each of the three sentences has seven words, seven, seven, seven. God sevened himself. The word is, is uh, on the seventh day, God covenanted himself to humanity and that's why he could rest because they're in covenant now. God blessed that day. He hallowed the seventh day. And that's the day he made a covenant of marriage with Adam and Eve. And the Hebrew word for swearing an oath is to Sheba. And Sheba literally means to seven one's self. So God swore an oath. He sevened himself. He swore a covenant oath. And in Latin, the language of the church, the early church, the word oath is called sacramentum. And from that, in English, we get sacrament. And how many sacraments do you think the Catholic Church has? Oh, really? Isn't that something? Swearing a covenant oath, 777. What a coincidence. Seven sacraments for those with eyes to see. It is not coincidental. It's God-incidental. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. A complete sevening. Uh, God has completed this oath. The first one we saw, the primordial sacrament of marriage in Genesis, and now already we've seen baptism, the ark, the water, coming through the water, coming into the, the boat, the safety of the church, like baptism, passing through the gate, through the water, into, into the safety of the church. The Hebrew word for oath is Sheba or seven. The Latin word for oath is sacramentum. Christ instituted seven of these sacramentums, these oaths, as part of his new covenant. Seven sworn oaths to the universal humanity, universal Catholic, all humanity, for all time, Jesus Christ, the self-proclaimed light of the world, instituted seven covenant-making and covenant-renewing oaths. What do I mean by that? We're going to take a look. This is something I made up. It's a triangle. I'm an old science teacher. It's a prism of glass, like three-sided, like the Trinity. Jesus, the pure light of the world, comes in. The white, pure white light is refracted into a beautiful rainbow of seven sacraments. Seven covenant-making or covenant-renewing oaths. So what's baptism? Is, is, it, is it, it's a one and done, right? You get baptized once for all. You don't have to go to Jerusalem and get in the Jordan River and get rebaptized. No. It's done. You were baptized into the Trinity. You were baptized into Christ. But some of the seven sacraments are called covenant renewing oaths. And one example would be reconciliation. Because did you ever sin since your baptism? Yes. Did you sin since your first reconciliation? Did you sin since your reconciliation last week? 
Uh -huh. So we need this one to be a covenant renewing oath. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Jesus told his apostles. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when Jesus rose from the dead to those ten new, that fullness of priests in the upper room, he said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So after the fall, remember, it's not like in the beginning anymore. And we have a fallen human nature and we are saddled with concupiscence and we have an inclination attender to sin. And that lower nature and that upper nature, the flesh and the spirit are fighting each other. St. Paul talked about it all the time, and it's an internal struggle within us. And so thank God that that sacrament of reconciliation is a covenant renewing oath. So even if we mess up and we break our end of the covenant, God never will. And God even offers us this to get back in right relationship with him and get back in that covenantal love again. So thank God. It's just the greatest gift he gave us. The next one, baptism, reconciliation, communion. Is communion a renewable or a one and done? That's right. Eucharist is renewable. It's renewable. You can go daily and get Jesus in your temple. You can go daily and partake and be in communion in the fullest communion with him. How about confirmation? One and done. You get confirmed once and you're a soldier of Christ and you're ready to march. How about marriage? One and done. It's supposed to be until death do us part and no man should put it asunder. No man should separate it. How about priesthood? Should be, holy order should be one and done, or the diaconate. Steve, one and done. <laughs> How about anointing the sick? Renewable. I've had it four times, the anointing of the sick. We used to call it extreme unction, and they'd wait till the very last second. But now, after Vatican II, I've had it four times because if you're facing a serious health condition or surgery, or you can have this, this beautiful sacrament of healing, this anointing. So seven covenant oaths. Some are renewable, some are one. But, but in the fullness, God has sevened himself and made a sacramentum with us, a fullness of seven, seven, seven. Now, so Adam and Eve... I want to show you also how the covenants grow in, in who they cover. Okay, so the first one covenant with Adam and Eve, that was marital. That's two people, a marriage, man and woman. Adam's a priest, prophet, and king. Adam is king, priest, prophet, all of these will be, and so are you. You are a priest, prophet, and king by process of your baptism. How was he a king? Remember, God made Adam king of the original creation, and he let him name all the animals. That's a kingly act of naming he had dominion in his kingdom. How was he a priest? He offered sacrifice of blood atonement. He taught his sons because Cain and Abel knew how to offer sacrifice. God had to show them. He had to give them animal skin to cover them and, and the blood, how to sacrifice. He was also a prophet. Can you imagine when they found dead Abel and how he had to teach his family and tell them what God wanted them to do now that they were wounded? So that's the first covenant. It's marriage. It's two people. How about Noah's covenant. It's going to get bigger. It's a bigger audience. How many are saved in this covenant? Ah, it's a familial covenant. Eight in all. It was all him and his family. God is extending the covenant from two married people now to a whole family. Eight in all. Noah is also a priest, a prophet, and a king. How is he a priest? He gets off the ark and immediately offers sacrifice on behalf of the family. How is he a prophet? Remember, he told the secular world that God was going to send rain. He was speaking God's truth and it didn't make him real popular with the people. How is he a king? He's a king over the new creation. This is a brand new creation and Noah is the king. God said he would establish a covenant with Noah 
and his family, a covenant, an eternal covenant. He'll send a sign, the beautiful bow. I said a bow in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 10 and 11 on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.